Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all. It's good to see you, those that are watching from home. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Almost 250 years ago, these words were penned, and they have become a mainstay for Christians, for followers of Christ everywhere. Not only have these words stood the test of time, but these words have reached across racial divides, denominational differences. They have even crossed political affiliations. The words of this song have met many of us in some dark places, moments of doubt and despair. And rightly so, you see, the words of this song were birthed out of the extreme brokenness of the life of a slave trading sailor. John Newton, since the age of 11, had led a life at sea. Accurate or not, the reputation of sailors is that they are generally not noted for their, um, well, they're not noted for their clean speech um, or their good manners. And history would tell us that John Newton himself had a reputation for being a man of profanity, coarseness, and debauchery, which shocked even many a sailor. And it was in the midst of a raging storm on a ship that he was sailing, it was being thrashed and in danger of capsizing and going under. He was literally tied to the helm with rope so that he could steer the ship. And at that point, the 23-year-old young man was faced with death, but more importantly, he was faced with an opportunity to examine his life. In that moment, he concluded that his life seemed as ruined and wrecked as the battered ship he was trying to steal. And it was in those uncertain moments he recalled the teachings from Scripture about God that he had heard as a youth. And at that moment, he cried out to the Lord for help and was saved not only from the storm, but he was saved from his sins as well. John Newton would later become a minister of the gospel, and he penned this song initially as a poem. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. And today, whether you listen to these words, whether you hear this teaching, and you are already a follower of Jesus Christ, or whether you hear these words today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that not one of us is beyond the amazing grace of Jesus and its ability to change our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us. We thank you for the grace that you have poured out on us. While we didn't earn it, while we didn't deserve it, you willingly provided a way to have access to the Father, a way to have our sins forgiven, a way to find new life. And it is through that amazing grace. Thank you in advance for the salvation that you bring to us and will be continuing to bring to others. Jesus, it's your name we pray. Amen. You know, we find ourselves living right now in seasons and situations where we are experiencing the thrashing by storms. Now, I'm not talking rain and large winds, although we did have some pretty large winds here a few days ago. I'm not talking about sinking ships. Now, unless you've been living in a cave the last few weeks, or especially the last few days, if you've been someplace where there's no internet or, or, or no cell service, um, 
you've missed it, right? If that's where you were, but we have been spending the last, you know, few weeks in a political fury, the last few days just waiting to find out who was going to be a president of the United States of America for the next four years. Now, you and I, we've mailed in our ballots and, or we've gone and stood in line. We've taken selfies, you know, with our I voted stickers. We've watched the news feeds. We've listened to our social media and we've talked politics with friends and with family and sometimes with perfect strangers. As a result, though, of the political elections, um, the things that were on the ballot as well as the people that were on the ballots, there are some people right now that are gloating, but there are also some people living in anger. I think some of us have taken the political process way too personally. And I think, sadly, some have made it way too much of a priority. We are exiting a controversial season where millions of people have aligned themselves with political parties based on varying passions and agendas. And this is not true just for the most extreme conservative person you know. It's not true just for the most extreme liberal person that you know. It's not just true for the person with the big flags, you know, in their yards or on their vehicles or the big signs in their yard. It's not just true for the ones with the most annoying social media posts. And you know who I'm talking about, right? These words are true for me. Even though um, I made no zero, I made zero, zero political posts on my social media, right? I can count on both hands the number of conversations that I had about politics besides the ones I had with my wife, right? There has not been a day gone by this week where I have not turned on the television and tuned in to find out what the results of the election were. You see, the extreme... Uh, attachment to the political climate is true for those of us in the church just as it is for everyone else. And I confess to you this morning that it is possible in this recent political climate that I have pursued connection with the kingdom of politics more than I have pursued connection with the kingdom of heaven. And my guess is maybe some of you find yourself in that same place as well. So today, as believers in Christ, I'm convinced it might just be necessary for us to hit pause and to hear a timely reminder of the things that should be our greatest passion and our greatest purpose for our lives. Here at Fork, we want people to be reminded and to remember that as Christians, while it's important that we don't become politically disengaged, that we need to remember that our foremost purpose and responsibility in this life is following after Jesus Christ. So today we start a new teaching series, and it's called Marked, Called by the Savior. Where the next couple of weeks will be encouraged to allow our lives to be marked by the teachings of Jesus Christ. Marked. Such a unique term. So many variants of it. Now we might think of cards that are marked. And when we think of that, we would picture a gambler taking advantage of his uh, unsuspecting opponent. If a person is a marked man, we would consider that he is destined to be harmed or perhaps even killed. Now, on the other hand, if you're a hiker or a biker, you appreciate very much those trails that are clearly marked for direction. 
a marked police car, one that is clearly identified by its paint scheme and by its logo and by the lights on top. When we find ourselves in a troubled moment, they bring about security and comfort. Now, and if you voted, you will know very well the importance that a clearly marked ballot expresses who or what you align yourself with. The dictionary.com gives us this definition of mark as strikingly noticeable, conspicuous. Merriam-Webster.com defines marked as having a distinctive or emphasized character. So, whether marked for destruction or marked for direction or marked for distinction... When one is marked, there should be no mistaking who we are marked for. There should be no confusion about what we are marked for. And when it comes to following Jesus, there should be no lack of clarity regarding who we are marked by. So as we move from a season where we may have found ourselves being too easily marked by our political preferences, by our political policies and our political parties, let's take the next few minutes together and look at some ways in which we should be clearly marked by our Savior. You know, being a follower of Jesus, uh, it can certainly mean a lot of things for us as believers individually and, and as a church collectively. And there's lots of different directions we could go, but today I want to focus on ordering our lives around three primary purposes. Now, if you're a note taker, this is where, this is your, this is your sweet spot, right? So here they are, right? So one is being with Jesus in our lives, being with Jesus in our lives. The second one is becoming like Jesus in our attitudes, becoming like Jesus in our attitudes. And the third one is living like Jesus in our actions. In our Bibles, in the New Testament part of our Bibles, we have four recorded books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are all recordings of the life of Christ. This is where we learn the most about the life that Christ lived as he walked here on earth. Two of the books were written by men who actually walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, shared meals with Jesus, right? Uh, Now, it might be easy to assume that if you were going to walk with Jesus and then write one of the books about his life, the people that Jesus might want to write those books about his life, we might assume that they were good guys, right? You might assume that maybe this person that was chosen to write one of the books about the history of the life of Jesus Christ, maybe they were the son of a priest or maybe they were like the top of their class in a Jewish synagogue. But while none of the men that Jesus chose to be his first followers came from a, well, a fine spiritual pedigree, fishermen and stuff like that, right? Uh, one of the men who Jesus chose to be one of his earliest followers came with an exceptionally shaky foundation. He came with a less than desirable occupation. And because of his reputation, he was held in the dimmest of views by his fellow Jews. And it's in the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, that we're going to read a little bit about his story. Verse 27, later as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi. And I'm going to pause for a second, because some of your Bibles might say a tax collector named Matthew. Well, that's very, that's fine. That's good, all right? It's okay. Uh, See, Matthew was his Greek name, and Levi was his name in Hebrew. So Levi, Matthew, same guy, right? So anyway, they see this tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. 
follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Now, I don't know where you stand when it comes to tax collectors, right? It's possible that some of you hold a very dim view toward uh, maybe the IRS, especially if your tax refund was delayed or perchance you were ever the recipient of an audit. Even so, we might think that the religious leaders of the day calling Matthew and his friends scum was a little extreme. Now, we have to understand that these guys were not your ordinary IRS agents. These were not your typical employees of the Maryland Department of Assessments and Taxation. No. You see, when Jesus walked the earth, there was one political party, or at least only one that really mattered, right? Um, Since Jesus and his followers were living under Roman rule, their party was the Romans. It was the Roman government, and consequently, they were subject to all the taxation laid out by Rome. And as unfair as we might think our tax system is today, theirs was worse. And at the expense of their fellow Jews, certain Hebrews had aligned themselves with Rome, this oppressive political party. And they had empowered, been empowered by Rome to collect taxes for the Roman government. These nefarious collectors found it convenient and even opportune to demand tax payments from individuals at a whim, stopping them on the street and demanding taxes. Well, they would choose the opportunity to collect more than what was actually owned, and they padded their pockets, and they made quite the nice living off of their countrymen. And here is where we enter the story of Matthew. He's a tax collector, a sinful, mistrusted, broken individual, a man with a stained past, a poor reputation, despised by society. Yet if we read the scriptures, we know that by being with Jesus in his life, Matthew found new hope, new priorities, new life, and new purpose. He became a faithful follower of Jesus and eventually wrote for us the book of Matthew we find in our New Testament. And I want you to know this morning that just as it was true, not only for Matthew, but also the other 11 that Jesus chose, the hand-picked followers who were to go into all the world telling the good news about the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, just as it was true for them that they were marked by their Savior for being with Jesus in their lives, so too it is with you and it is with me. If we are being with Jesus in our lives, we are marked We are made distinctive and we are made noticeable by him because we have been being with Jesus in our lives. And some of you might be saying, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's great. But you might be saying, man, Matthew and John and Peter and those guys, like they walked with Jesus and, you know, they hung out with Jesus. You know, they, they played football with Jesus. I don't know if they played football in Israel or not, but, you know, like they did life with Jesus. How do we, how do we be with Jesus when, well, it's the 21st century. 
Listen, friends, being with Jesus happens when we listen to him as we read his teachings and study his life through the words of the scriptures. Being with Jesus happens as we communicate to him by praying to him, talking with him. And as he promised his disciples over 2,000 years ago that if we are followers of his, being with Jesus happens because we have his Holy Spirit living inside of us as serving us as a comforter and as a counselor and as an advocate and as an encourager. We can be being with Jesus. I'm guessing that there might be some, though, that are listening to these words today that might thinking, I don't know that Jesus would want me in his presence. I don't know that Jesus would want me in his family. I don't know that Jesus would want me in his kingdom or in his church. Maybe like Matthew, you come preloaded with baggage. Maybe like Matthew, you come preloaded with a bad reputation, stained and despised by society, thinking that Jesus is only for the good people. But I want to assure you today, if that's where you find yourself, that just as Matthew was marked by being with Jesus in spite of the start of his story, that no matter the start of your story, you can be marked by Jesus as well. And for all of us, when we are being with Jesus in our lives, we are marked by him. The next thing goes on. We say, well, when we are being marked by Jesus, we become like him in our attitude. When we are marked by Jesus, we become like him in our attitudes. And I'm going to overstate the obvious right here. We cannot become like Jesus in our attitudes if we do not spend time being with him in our lives. Maybe too obvious, but we can't be having the attitude of Christ if we're not spending time with him. Your parents probably told you from the time you were a small child, be careful who you hang around with because you become like the company that you keep. Now, a lot of us didn't listen to that advice, right? Didn't make them wrong, just we didn't listen to it. You see, if you want to be a person who has the attitude of Jesus, you have to hang out with Jesus. You got to hang out with Jesus so you know what type of attitude he has. This is common sense. I mean, if you want to become a great quarterback in the NFL, it might be good to hang out with Lamar Jackson. If you want to become a great NASCAR driver, it might be great to hang out with Brad Keselowski, who will probably win the championship this afternoon. I don't make predictions from this stage. Anyway, um, when I was an impressionable 17-year-old, there was a man, a Christian man in my life. His name was Daryl Brame. He was the new youth minister at my church. Came as soon as I graduated from high school. And I really looked up to him. I really admired him. I wanted to be like him. And so what did I do? I hung out with him. I hung out with him as much as I could. He opened his house to me. He opened his life to me. He opened his refrigerator to me, which as a 17-year-old was probably the most important thing he could have done. And my relationship with Daryl Brame not only impacted my attitude for the good, but my actions as well. Jesus was having a conversation with his closest followers as they were arguing about who was going to be great in the kingdom. It's in Matthew chapter 20. And Jesus says, you know, the rulers in this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it must be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul, who was a uh, persecutor of the church, a murderer, some would call him a terrorist, right? He was a hostile individual, angry at what Jesus was saying, what Jesus was doing, and who the church was being who later became a believer, one of the staunchest advocates for the case of Christ, um, he wrote these words to a church in Philippi in the Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. It's like, wake up. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. It's like Paul is saying to his audience, like Paul is saying to us, you want to be marked by the Savior? You got to have his attitude, right? And if we want to be marked by our Savior, by becoming like him in our attitudes, then we need to lose our attitude, we need to lose our attitude. Think about this. Whatever rights we think are ours, whatever position we think we deserve, whatever privilege we think that we are entitled to, Paul says we need to lose those for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. We have to lose our attitude so we can gain Christ's attitude. You see, when we're marked by Jesus, we become like him in our attitudes. And Paul knew, and you know, and I know, that attitude without action is just another attitude. You see, if we want to be marked by the Savior, we have to live like Jesus in our actions. Before Paul started talking about having the attitude of Christ, he talked about the way Christ acted in Philippians 2, starting in the first verse. He says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, these verses are a reality check. They're a gut check. They're an attitude check. Call it what you want, but I'm going to call it when we are marked by Jesus, we become like him in our actions check. Because I got to look at myself and compare up to these verses. You see, whatever our policies or preferences... Whatever our plans or our purposes, whatever our ideas or ideologies, if we belong to Christ, if we have experienced his love, if we are striving for his unity, then we have to allow ourselves to be marked by the Savior as ones who are being with Jesus in their lives, ones who are becoming like Jesus in our attitudes, and ones who are living like Jesus in our actions. So that just might mean, especially in this climate we find ourselves, especially in the storms we find ourselves living, that we need to unplug from media a bit. 
whether it's politics or sports or that sitcom that really isn't that funny, maybe we need to unplug a little bit and spend time being with Jesus. And maybe it means that we need to exercise an attitude of grace and an attitude of forgiveness, especially for those who have rubbed us wrong in this political season. And for some of us, it might mean that we need to take some further action to apologize for some of our posts, for some of our comments, and even for some of our political aggression. We may need to take some moments to mend some fences and rebuild some relationships. We may need to simply bite our tongue and say a prayer when others don't share our Christ-marked attitude. You see, if we have been marked by the Savior, it will show. If we've been marked by the Savior, the world cannot help but know. And if we are marked by the Savior, then we will go and we will tell the world that no matter the storm, no matter the season, that there is an amazing grace, so sweet the sound, it saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And the world needs to know that that amazing grace is available for me, and they need to know that it is available for them as well.